welcome to Breaking the Surface, where we break into a delicious beverage and also dive into the topic at hand. I'm one of your co-hosts, Taylor Kramer. I'm the owner and lead producer for Cold Shower Media. I'm Pat Milligan. I'm a journalist here in Traverse City. And I'm another friend. I am Anthony Weber, and I am a pastor and an ethics teacher, and I am something of a fashion icon when it comes to oversized sweaters. The point here is that we want to go beyond the talking points to get to the depths of what is happening in our world. It should also be said that this podcast is part of the Boardman Review Podcast Collective in collaboration with Cold Chart Media. The Podcast Collective aims to provide unique content curated by the Boardman Review, the creative culture and outdoor lifestyle journal of Northern Michigan. So today we are drinking a blueberry cream ale from Sheboygan Brewing Company. And Anthony brought this for us today. The description of this is a light bodied ale brewed with lactose sugar, which we all just had to look up and and find out was basically milk sugar. Um, Fermented over blueberries, fresh fruit aroma bursts from this deliciously creamy brew. It's got an ABV of uh, 5.6. So it's kind of, um, I'm having it right now. It's kind of light. It's got a little bit of blueberry taste, but not overwhelming. What do you guys think? Got just the right amount of hint of blueberry, I think. And yeah, it's, it's smooth and creamy. I like it. I like it a lot too. And I was just telling you guys uh, prior, my wife and I lived in Sheboygan for a couple of years. And so Sheboygan Brewing has our heart a little bit too. And they, this beer along with their blood orange honey are some of my favorite beers. So thank you Sheboygan Brewing and go get your milk sugar and your blueberry cream ale. Welcome to episode 13 of Breaking the Surface. And today we're going to talk about climate change. And as a way to get this discussion going, Uh, Beth and Taylor, I have a question for you. Mm. Um, It's fairly commonly accepted that I'm hot. Why is that? Discuss. Oh, um, we're going this way with it. (laughs) (laughs) I was curious how you were going to open this up. And it's with a dad dad approach. I like it. I'm wearing flannel today. (laughs) Felt like the appropriate way. Well, Anthony, it's because the earth is warming and you Uh, along with it. I was afraid of that. (laughs) So it's that explanation, is it? Okay. (laughs) <laughs> so let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, a recent report came out and I think uh, I've, I've watched a review of it and I know a summary, but I think the two of you might be more familiar with some of the details. Uh, Beth, you want to talk just a bit about what's hitting the news waves right now and reference to climate change? Yeah, I think, you know, that when people hear climate change report, it, it feels, I think it can feel a little tedious because I think, you know, every, it feels like few months or some kind of climate change report and some sort of dire warning about the state of the planet. I think it needs to be known that this report is a little bit different. Um, one, because of who put it out, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, which is a UN-sponsored body. This requires almost 200 countries to sign off on this report. So it's very significant is the largest peer-reviewed scientific study of this topic. Um, These are the experts. These are the people who spend a lot of time um, looking at it. The report is almost 4,000 pages long, and it synthesizes eight years of advances in climate change, citing some 14,000 studies. So this is very intensively researched. Um, and I think what's notable about this report is that past uh, versions of IPCC reports have used um, some hedging language, like it seems highly likely that humans are impacting the climate or it seems um, our confidence is high. This report says it is unequivocal that humans are causing climate change and that the damage is here and is going to get worse. Um The earth has warmed almost two degrees Fahrenheit since the pre-industrial age, and it is expected to continue rising. Um, I think what I found notable about the report was grim news, and this is why I'm glad we have some alcohol today. This is not the funnest uh, (laughs) topic to talk about, but we basically, the report, the report's finding is that the next 30 years are baked in. Even if we change everything dramatically today, Mm -hmm. completely transform societies, we have three rough decades ahead of us. And those decades are going to see temperatures continue to climb. They're going to see um, what are likely called compound events, which is when you have a back-to-back disaster, like a heat wave followed by a storm or a flood followed by a freezing event. Um, Things that used to be really rare will not be rare. And so some of like the hurricanes and the wildfires and droughts and things that we're seeing We've got 30 years of that ahead of us, and we can't really do anything to stop it. And that's just based on what's in the atmosphere right now. 
um, the only glimmer of hope, <laughs> I would say, in the report and just reading a lot of scientific an analyses of the report is that if we do significantly transform our societies and reduce our carbon dioxide um, release, then we could essentially, if you think of it's like a ship that's charging towards the shore, we can't do anything for the next three decades of it, but we could stop the ship from crashing into the shore after 30 years. So we could make significant transformations now and slow the ship down, get the temperature to stay stable instead of continuing to rise where it's just going to get disastrous with each 10th of a degree that the earth's um, temperature goes up. So it's not a um, fun read or an encouraging read, but it. I just have to, again, emphasize that this is the first time I've seen language this clear from the IPCC that this is happening and this is what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All I heard is that it's okay to cope with alcohol. Is that, yes. what, we're, okay, yeah. is that what we're saying? They were all drinking heavily when they released this report. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, a lot of hiccuping during the news conference. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> um, yeah. So I had... Um, watched some of the same videos in preparation for this uh, regarding the IPCC and putting it into terms that I could understand. And yeah, it was a very um, kind of poor outlook, but there were some, some glimmers of hope, I guess. Uh, what's interesting is just to me throughout my entire life, I've kind of witnessed this inability for people to get on the same page with something like climate change. And I could kind of um, treat it almost akin to, um, international politics where it's not that people are like, this isn't important. Um, but it's more of a, I don't even know where to start with something like this, a topic that's this deep. And particularly if you live in areas where you're not directly impacted, or if you have the means of someone that can kind of avoid some of the, uh, bad things that can come along with climate change. So we, I want to talk a little bit more in detail, maybe later in the episode about how this, the types of people that climate change is going to affect at a more drastic level than maybe even someone like myself. But, uh, I remember Al Gore talking about these things, you know, 20 some years ago and very quickly being labeled as just like a kooky guy that, um, was saying some really weird stuff or there was talks of acid rain. I don't know if that was back in the early nineties where acid rain was, was a hot topic. I think it was earlier than about. that. Actually. Was it in the eighties yeah. perhaps? Um, so this is fascinating because you talk about the language and kind of the direction that they're going where, where they put out this report and they say, no, we are responsible for this. And so we have to be the ones that are going to make these, these changes to kind of change course. And, and so that climate change isn't going to have um, an even more negative impact than what it already has. And the other kind of interesting thing about it is that people are going to have to participate in the change that aren't going to be around in 30 years. And so they get to kind of make that decision of like, well, you know, do I really want to participate in this? It's not going to impact me uh, necessarily because I'm not even going to be here. And that's just adds another layer of nuance to this of like why it's so hard to grasp. Why do I really have to make a change for something that may or may not happen in a hundred years? And those are things that people are really having to ask themselves right now. Okay. I have a question. When they talk about the impact of our existence on aiding global warming or aiding and abetting, I'll go with that term. Is the suggestion that we are the cause of all of it, or is it possible that we're just kind of compounding something that is part of a cycle of nature? Because I think it would be fair to say that throughout human history, there has been an ebb and flow to global temperatures. So is the IPCC suggesting that the change that's happening now is entirely our fault or that we are simply making worse a trend that is also happening naturally, so to speak? My takeaway from the report is that we have dramatically impacted and accelerated change in a way that is way beyond geologic trends or okay. typical global trends that it's specifically the time period from when we started getting the industrial revolution and introducing fossil fuels into the system to today, where it just went off the charts, way different than kind of the ebbing and flowing that you're talking about. And I think mm -hmm. the problem is that, you know, especially with you know, some of the findings of this report that sea rise is almost, you know, unavoidable, that we could have no ice in the Arctic, you know, mm -hmm. in the next century, that we could have major glacial collapse in both Antarctica and the Arctic. So um, those kind of things are things that, you know, 
to be fair to Anthony's point over Earth, like we've seen, you know, we've been hit by an asteroid and we've seen a, a lot of tremendous geologic change on Earth. And you could argue that that's part of the pattern. That hasn't really been the pattern so much of the human part of the Earth's history. And now in this age, especially the industrial age, it's just completely different than I think what we've seen before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I know that's not what Anthony intends, but I think that question has been a, a way for people to avoid culpability. Um, in the past too, is like, well, this could just be a natural thing. And so um, we couldn't possibly be responsible for these changes that we're seeing. And I know much of the focus is on things like the temperature increases, but I would just ask people to look at the other impacts that we're having on our environment. So if we are, um, you know, polluting from these factories and from our vehicles, well, at the same time, there's just wild deforestation taking place in, in places like South America or we're building highways across uh, migratory areas for animals. Uh, we're building parking lots in places where there used to be grass and then the heat that that can cause in cities. And so there's just many different areas that you can point to that says like, we have to do better. Mm-hmm. Um, and and kind of watching what our impacts actually are on things like this, not just the the temperature increase, which I think is probably the most dire thing. Because mm-hmm. um, we the one video I was watching, it was saying that, um, in places where there might be, say, a, th- a three degree increase, that might just be in that area. At that same time, there could be other areas that are experiencing as high as nine degree increases. And so mm-hmm. what does that mean for things like ice? And you don't just grow new ice just by having a cold year or two. That same thing, a bounce back, if it's able to happen, is going to take a long, long time. Just like it has taken quite a long time for us to have, I think, this negative of an impact on the world as we've industrialized. Taylor, a couple questions for you, because I believe you have done more reading on this than I have when it comes to the temperature. Two things. One is, I believe the report said two degrees Fahrenheit last 150 years. Um, Okay, so talk about how you place that as a sense of an average and what that means about individual people's experiences, depending where they live. And then secondly, Beth, you mentioned that even a tenth of a degree makes a difference. And I think for the average person like me, uh, well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, uh, Anthony, I'll don't, be, you're I'll not be average. average for the sake of this discussion <laughs> <laughs> for, for the average person like me, that sounds minuscule. Even two degrees sounds minuscule. Uh, what is it about even those small changes that matter so much? So Taylor, if you want to talk just a little bit about the, how you factor in hot spots and cold spots and averages, and then Beth, a little bit more about the, how a 10th of a degree can mm-hmm. be so dramatic. Yeah. So I'm, I'm on, um, the who website, which I know the who is really popular right now, but that's the band um, they're yes, making the a resurgence. Band. Yeah. They, yeah. It's crazy. They really switched gears. Yeah. Um, but here it just outlines a list of what is the impact of climate change on health. And so they, they go down and they list things. So things like extreme heat and you talk about extreme heat, who is that going to impact? That's going to impact maybe the elderly in cities, um, especially impoverished communities that can't afford things like air conditioning. They're going to be much more susceptible to dying from a hundred degree day, as opposed to someone like us, that it it could just be a little bit of an inconvenience. So it doesn't mean, let's say they were having a hundred degree days. It doesn't mean there's suddenly 102 degree days, but in certain spots, there's now 112 degree days. Right. Okay. Yeah. And, Mm -hmm. and, And it's going to impact different people different ways. And it it could just be much more serious for certain people than it is for others. Um, Natural disasters and variable rainfall patterns. And so things like that, if we're not able to maybe predict as well rainfall patterns, or we're not getting as much rain as we're used to, then that's obviously going to impact crops and, and our ability to feed ourselves. Patterns of infection. So it talks about things like malaria, which we're not really impacted by Mm -hmm. here in the U S at the same level that places like Africa would be, but if those become more common, they're already losing like 400,000 people every year malaria takes. And so what would those numbers look like if, if the patterns of infection are increasing? And just for me, it's just more of like a, a focus on, on who is at risk and those differences and understanding those differences. And the story I have to share is you remember the flood that took place in Houston. Was it maybe at the yeah. spring? Um, but that was a very strange occurrence because not only was there the flooding, but then there was some freezing that was taking place and they were experiencing um, snowfall in areas that they really were, were not used to. Those homes weren't built to withstand that type of thing. So I have family in Houston and they're very well to do. And I was thinking about um, their experience with that event 
versus uh, a homeless person in Houston or someone who's living below the poverty line. And all of this is kind of intertwined in politics too. So what what are we going to vote for in terms of legislation and, and climate leaders and different things like that? Well, if I look at my family in Houston and their experience with the flooding, they have the means to take care of all those things. It was, it sucked, but it was an inconvenience. And when we're only inconvenienced, I don't know that that's going to do enough to impact like who we're going to vote for, what legislation we would like to see passed versus those who are like, yeah, my grandma was trapped in her house and it was freezing. She, she froze to death in Houston. Mm -hmm. And so those are things that they impact people differently. And I really think our only way to be able to move forward is for those um, that are only inconvenienced to understand how uh, drastically impacted the least of us are. So I don't mean the least um, important, but I mean those that have the least. Yeah. And and we have to be able to understand like how we might need to step up for those populations. Yeah, I found a helpful metaphor. So I have to say, first of all, just to piggyback on what Taylor said that because I, I happen to personally really love marine biology and love the ocean. I've studied it a lot in my life that I know that at least in the ocean, um, things like coral and so many species of fish are super temp temperature sensitive. That's why they, you know, they'll go up higher if they need to be warm in the sun or they'll go lower and their bodies are really calibrated to those temperatures. So even minor degree shifts can mean life or death for coral systems, which are, you know, huge ecosystems for the ocean. And it also can push fish into new habitats, which then starts this whole domino effect of predators and prey. You start seeing fish. We already see it in the U S with birds, birds are the same way. I'm very temperature sensitive where we're seeing it this year in Michigan, my birding friends were excited because they were seeing birds here that they had never seen before yeah. because huh. their migratory patterns are off. So they were bumping up into our area really? where they would normally be way further in the South. Um, so exciting for birding, bad for birds right. <laughs> that that would be happening. I did find an English um, a scientist who gave an example. And so these are going to be English uh, measurements because everyone uses the metric system, but us, but she kind of compared it to human civilization as a pedestrian that's about to be hit by a vehicle. And so she said a one and a half degree Celsius temperature increase by 2100 might correspond with an impact speed of 10 kilometers an hour, whereas three degrees twice as much would be 70 kilometers an hour. So even though you're only going up a little bit, the impact is there. And I've seen that just as a reporter covering like pedestrian car accidents, the difference between hitting someone at 15 miles an hour and even 30 could be life or death for the pedestrian. Right. Yeah. So she was just sort of using that as an example. Like it's not just a clear correlation of like this degree is this damage and then twice as much as twice as much. It compounds every 10th mm -hmm. of degree. That's really, really important. I, I think to use analogies like that, because I myself have struggled to understand like the impacts of this. And I, I'm reminded of like, if you talk to different people who say they all have central air, or they have heat functioning heat, you're like, what temperature you like to keep your house at? And there's varying answers, but they're almost all within a couple of degrees. And so it's like, yeah, I mean, myself personally at 72, I start to feel like a little hot. 68 is like perfect. And so that's just really interesting because to us, it's very easy to just think in terms of like our comfort level. So what is, what does a degree here or there mean? It means I, I might take a piece of clothing off or I might put an extra shirt on, but to, to really understand through analogies like that, the greater impact that's taking place outside of just where we're existing, like in our skin. If we want to personalize this too, for people, you can go, the IPCC has a tool that allows, so they didn't just look at this globally, like Taylor was talking about different areas are going to be impacted in different ways. So a lot of times when I talk to friends in Northern Michigan, they're all like, we're going to be okay. Cause we have a relatively like stable climate and in worst case scenario, we're just gonna have nicer winters. They'll be a little bit milder. Mm -hmm. When I talk to farmers, it's very different. Mm -hmm. They are, they are worried right. that farming it's not going to be viable in Northern Michigan because at least for some mm. crops, the way it's going. Um, but this one report I did find was specialized to the Midwest. So you can go and put in your area and see what the projection is for your region. So just because some of our listeners are likely in the Midwest, the report is projecting that it's very likely that the Midwest will continue to see more extreme precipitation events that could lead to floods, high confidence of more drought coming, especially the warmer the world gets generally, and medium confidence there'll be more pre precipitation in the winter in the northern parts of the Midwest. The one thing that stood out to me was they said that the projection is, and this is without changes, but that by the end of this century, the Midwest climate will be more like that of present day Kentucky or Tennessee. Our summer is more like what it is now in present day Texas, wow. which is really wow. interesting to think about. Like that could happen in 
know, within 70, 80 years. Yeah, I don't know. It's just so, it's just such a crazy thing to try to grasp where one second we can be talking about um, the flooding that's happening in Detroit, where maybe there's not infrastructure in place to be able to handle flooding. And then within a matter of months, we can be talking about like this drought that's taken place. It's just, it's not black and white. And it seems like it's going to hit us from from every angle. Like once we can cover um, how to respond to floods, then it's like, oh, we haven't seen rain in quite a while. Like we really need some water here. It's just, it's, it's tough to grasp. Okay. So let me ask a question about this variety. So a decade ago, we talked about global warming. Now it's climate change. So I have heard the perspective that, well, this is a dodge. Global warming didn't pan out. So now they're going to call it something else. Mm. My understanding would be that global warming wasn't necessarily the best title for it because temperature patterns affect both extreme heat and extreme cold, but they all tie in to as temperatures rise, you will see more climate volatility. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit just to try to help help us all understand um, how the world getting hotter or the oceans or something like that can actually fuel more cold events or how, uh, yeah, just the interconnectedness of all of it. Yeah. I have a local example with the Great Lakes. So I see this a lot when I, we've had some record high lake levels the last few years and I've written a lot of stories about it. I've talked to a lot of scientists and meteorologists about it. And I think there is frustration. I think there is acknowledgement that global warming was not the best phrase. And I think climate change is more accurate and volatility is a really good word, Anthony, because when I write about Great Lakes rising, I constantly get comments from readers on the stories about like, this is what the Great Lakes always do. They go up, they go down. They've done that for decades. You can go back and find stories from the 60s about, you know, high lake levels impacting houses on the shoreline or whatever. And when I talk to scientists about that, their response is, yes, there, it's kind of what we we're talking about with the earth in general. There is a somewhat of a trend of rising and falling with the lake levels. What we're seeing with climate change is it's exploding that trend into a hugely volatile rising and falling. So now the highs are much higher, the lows are much lower, and it's unpredictable when they're going to happen. Sometimes they happen back to back. And what we're seeing like here in Traverse City, we're recording this podcast, our local infrastructure in Traverse City, we have all these aging clay pipelines in the city that are now below groundwater. So the groundwater is seeping into the pipes, overwhelming them, and then sewage is backing up into the streets. We've had that happen several times. And I feel for our city leaders because they get a lot of flack about like, how can we have this great tourist town and not be responsible enough to take care of our infrastructure? And it's like infrastructure for one is very expensive to take care of. That's why we haven't done it well in the United States. And two, when we built these systems, they were built for, yes, a 200 year storm. But when we've had in the last few years, a 200 year storm happening every month and a half, the infrastructure is not built for that. And I've had very frank conversations with city leaders where like, if we're going to deal with what's coming from this IPCC report, like we're going to have to rebuild the entire infrastructure. Mm -hmm. We have to rethink what infrastructure is because Mm -hmm. it's not meant to handle this kind of weather. It was built and designed a hundred years ago for weather. That's much different than what we're going to have in the 21st century. That's a good point. We've had flooding downtown too, that hasn't happened in a long time. And if it would be once every 10 years or even every 30 years and you go, Hey, remember that time? Mm-hmm. But now when you ask that question, it was like, Oh, last month. Yeah. What yeah. week did that yeah, happen? Right. Yeah. yeah. And I actually want to go back and correct myself. I think when I was talking about Houston, I actually had combined two separate events. So I believe that there was flooding in Houston a couple of years ago. That was pretty serious where we were some, t- some people were going down and literally rescuing people on boats yeah. from their homes. And then this most recent event, was that that cold streak where many people lost power? Like the they grid into the federal grid. And, yes. So yeah, Ted I Cruz went to I, Cancun. And, yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> because you, you're you right. Ditched. Some people will be able yeah. to. And actually, when I was reading this um, story about the Midwest, it did it talked about that Taylor. It said the people who are most likely <laughs> to be impacted are low income individuals, people of color, and adults 65 and older, because you know older adults are much more sensitive to heat and air quality and things like that. Mm-hmm. And what I'm interested in, we. And I wanted to do this episode day because at the end of our last episode, I threw a little climate change bomb at the end. And then I was like, maybe we should explore that a little bit instead of just leaving that grenade there at the end of an episode. But I mentioned it in the context of refugees, because if we do see the climate effects that are predicted in this report, 
we're going to have a lot of people who are going to suddenly find where they live uninhabitable, Mm -hmm. either because of heat or drought or lack of food or natural resources going, you know, away. So how are we going to prepare to handle that as a global community when all of a sudden it's just like not livable to be in Pakistan, you know, like, Mm -hmm. or India where there's huge, massive populations. So it's not that all of India would have to be evacuated likely, but you're going to have maybe huge parts of it that aren't livable for humans anymore. Yeah. Particularly places like India where there's a billion people there. Yeah. And so this isn't uh, just a small country with maybe not many resources. It's a, a country that is trying to support a billion people that, you know what I mean? There's a big difference between, um, you know, a lack of resources in a place where there's maybe not a ton of people and they could more freely move about and try to figure out what their next steps are. But in a place where people are, um, so densely populated, you have to act very quickly Mm -hmm. um, before something that sets in is going to cause a major loss of life. And so if, if, uh, India is negatively impacted very quickly, you're going to see tons and tons of people die versus if something were to happen, say in like Montana. And if you were to think by chance, well, the U S is pretty wealthy and we have a climate that we might have States like California that are not doing so great or Florida suddenly underwater, but we have like this huge section of the country where we could probably move people around or have the resources to deal with it. If you looked at it a very like isolationist way of like, which I think is the crudest, dumbest way to look at it. But if you were just like, we'll be okay. So we don't need to stress about this. Maybe India should think about this a little bit more than we should. Um, What I would say to that is that desperate people do desperate things. And if the U S isn't prepared to offer help or to be some kind of partner in this solution, then at some point, some country is going to be like, you have water and we're going to take it (laughs) and we're going to go to war with you or whatever. I don't think that we can just think that we can sit this out. And we live in Michigan where we're surrounded by fresh water. So yeah, that's a little bit eerie. If, if it were to get that apocalyptic where we would have people coming up from Florida and trying to take some of our resources here in Michigan, I'm maybe talking a little crazy, but, um, we are, we have a high concentration of fresh water and it's a very special place to exist in this country. And it's not a resource that everybody has. I've read all the Florida man stories. I wouldn't put it past. (laughs) I'm wondering though, Beth, back to your point about even if America thinks of itself as kind of an isolationist perspective, you know, look at what's happening in California. If what's happening there between the fires and the drought continues, people are going to be leaving California looking for somewhere new. Look at Louisiana. If they start getting cat fours and cat fives every year, yeah, that is a huge disincentive. You can't afford to rebuild infrastructure and homes every year. And if that becomes common, and my understanding is that uh, that hurricanes are becoming stronger and a lot of it's chalked up, I think, to o- ocean temperature and different things like that. Yeah, you're going to move. Same with Florida. I saw just today there's a new hurricane coming toward the East Coast. Mm-hmm. If that becomes common in coastal areas, you're going to see a retreat inland. Okay, now you've got infrastructure that needs to support it. And it might not be ready to support it. And you've also got other changes that are happening, like you mentioned, in the Midwest. And I don't know, the implications, even if we try to self-contain, which I agree with you, I think it's a bad idea. There still seems to be a lot of questions that are going to have to be answered. And I think the pandemic has sped up what you're talking about. Um, if someone is saying, you know, I really just, I, I love San Francisco or I love LA because of the food scene. And I just couldn't imagine moving somewhere else. Well, what happens when a pandemic comes along and it shuts all those things down that you love and that are the main reason why you're staying in a big city like that, you're going to scoot out of there. And I think that we've seen that with the pandemic, maybe whether people are able to work more remotely or they're like, well, I was living in New Orleans and everything's shut down anyway. Um, I could handle the hurricanes, but now that there was this pandemic on top of it and life in the city just isn't the same, I'm going to head out. And so it, it has sped that process up, I think. I have an ethical question for you guys. And we have an ethics teacher here. So, and I just went through an ethics class. So it was just on my mind. But ethic, ethical people in this room. I'll tell there's you lots of ethical people going on. We have on. a guest today. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Taylor, you can represent the non-ethical demographic Perfect. for That's us. That's easy. I'm going to pour more beer here. Uh. Um, so here's my question. I mean, I guess there's, there's kind of two ways that you can look at the environment, which is one, it is... Um, it is purely a resource for human betterment and the sustainment of human life. So everything from hunting animals to fishing in the ocean to, you know, um, drilling for oil, the environment is sort of there 
for us to master. It is not as important as human life. And we can kind of use those benefits and resources as we see fit. In ethics, there is often a question of like, do animals, are they beings that have some ethical worth or moral worth the same way that human beings are. And that's a whole separate conversation, but it's one way to look at it. Is that the bomb you're dropping today? That's the bomb I'm dropping today. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Is an animal have a right to live as much as you do? Think about it at home. Um, (laughs) Then the second question, the second way to look at it would be that, no, in fact, we're all part of a system and we all have value. Even if you think humans have a higher value, AKA you would save a human baby over say a dog in a fire or something like that. And I think a lot of people would. Um, you still see the value of other forms of life. And in either of those paradigms, I'm struggling with how people couldn't be taking climate change seriously because either we're losing huge amounts of species that are beautiful and diverse and special and unique. And they have, I think some intrinsic value outside of what they can do for humans. So we're destroying that and we're, we're, culpable as humans in doing that. We are destroying these environments. So there's that. And then there's also just the, if you just want to look at it purely from humans are all that matter, well, we're also screwing ourselves over by wasting these resources and making them unsustainable. I'm just curious if you guys, what you sort of paradigm you see the world in and how you see climate change impacting that. Well, I hate nature in general. <laughs> but you Perfect. love your pet chickens. I'm getting I'm getting certified as a naturalist right now, so we can balance each other out. That's <laughs> just big and scary. That's why we stay in the house. Uh, okay, so a couple thoughts I think about why people have been resistant to addressing this. One is a sense that there's a sense that there are political machinations going on. Is that the right word? Machinations. Machinations. Yeah. I knew, I knew between the three of us, we could pronounce that correctly, <laughs> where people are being manipulated and controlled by this, by putting out this kind of scary boogeyman of climate change. And there's kind of a nefarious plot to use that to control everything from means of productions to how people can work and where they can live, et cetera. Um, that one, I think, has gained a lot of traction that there's some mysterious you know, global elite behind this. So I think that's one reason people are resistant. They're wondering if they're being unfairly manipulated. I think the other reason is that to seriously address climate change will require, it will cost us something. And it will cost us something, generally speaking, economically. Either we're paying more for goods and services because corporations are having to clean up uh, factories, what they're putting out to the air. Cars might be more expensive if we're trying to control emissions. There's generally an economic cost attached to it, and people don't want that added economic cost. I think that's two of the main objections. I I don't find the first one compelling. Well, I don't find either one of them compelling, frankly, uh, because I tend to take the stance that we are here to steward the environment. The environment is something that's been given to us. So because I am a Christian, I view this through a Christian lens, And I get that some of the criticism is against Christians and how they've responded to this. So I'll just give you my understanding of it. And that is uh, from the very beginning, we were intended to take care of that which has been given to us. And when we are done handling it and living in it and interacting with it, it ought to be in better shape than it was given to us. And I think that is a huge part of my expectation or because I'm a Christian of God's expectation for uh, the world that we we don't brutalize it. We don't um, simply use things for our benefit, though clearly things do benefit us. And we've been very creative about how to build and explore and do all kinds of amazing things with it. But at the end of the day, we're supposed to give it back in better shape than we got it. That seems to be actually a really fundamental view embedded in the Bible. And that's creation. That's people. That's everything we have. It's just... Uh, that is a foundational opinion. And so it's hard for me to envision why I wouldn't care. Like if there's something I can do uh, that genuinely matters in the world, I think I ought to consider what it looks like for me to participate in it. And I would have to set politics aside and conspiracies aside. In fact, you could argue that the big conspiracy was true, mm-hmm. that they are going to manipulate us. And you could argue it is going to be more expensive and we're going to have to deal with that. But that still would not free me from the responsibility of taking care 
of what has been given to me. So those could actually all be held together if we wanted to do that. I want to let Taylor answer this too, but I just want to jump in just before I lose this thought and just say that um, I'm glad you brought this up and it kind of tying into my ethical question. I have a lot of anger I just have to say towards a lot of how I've seen Christians respond to the idea of climate change or the environment in general, because you mentioned stewardship and we talked about this a little bit before we started recording the podcast, but just for the sake of listeners, I had pointed out that I I have often heard in church circles, this idea of dominion in, in Genesis, this idea that humans have, you know, Adam was charged with naming the animals and the, some had some control or dominion over them that he was ranked highest and like owned them or whatever, or controlled them. And I think that idea of dominion has sort of given a certain segment of the Christian population, this idea that human or animals are what we called in the first scenario I gave, like their resources. The earth is a resource that has been given to humans for their betterment. And so you can kind of use it however you want. You don't have to really think about the ethical ramifications of how you're using it. The second argument I've seen tied to that from Christians is that because God has some plan for the earth and for us and has put us here, he's not going to let things get out of control. Like the earth is a renewable resource. It will always be stable. He designed it. We can't question his design. The lakes are going to replenish themselves. The ice is somehow going to freeze back up. It's all going to be in balance because he wouldn't let it get out of balance. And then the third and final thing I would say about Christians is because they're so tied to the GOP party and the GOP party is so funded by the oil industry and a lot of these big, you know, energy lobbying groups that the GOP response to climate change has been, you know, skeptical mockery because they have they're representing and funded by industries who benefit from fossil fuels. But that belief system then trickles down to Christians because they take a lot of what like Christianity and the GOP have become too intermingled with their messaging. So it's not just now Christians like believing what's in the Bible. There's also sort of a lot of Christians I know, not all, but think whatever the GOP party believes somehow represents also Christianity. So just all these ways that those have been intermingled have been very bad, where I wish I saw more Christians saying what you're saying, which is that this is a beautiful gift. And if you believe it was created by God, it's something that we should steward and take care of and be grieved by the destruction of. Do you want to jump back in, Anthony? Sure. I I think a lot of things have suffered in translation, going back to the question of dominion versus stewardship. Um, and, And a lot of those translation issues have had to do with the intertwining of trying to understand a biblical view of the world for Christians and the way it intersects with politics at times. Uh, I see nowhere that God expects Christians to plunder the world for their benefit. (laughs) Uh, Sure. It can be used for the, for our benefit um, as it has been, as we clearly see everywhere. And I don't think anybody's opposed to that, but I'm, I'm certain that in the kind of ecosystem in which we live in, in which individual things flourish as the system flourishes, you help the system flourish. And that's where things like renewable resources, like trees, yep, we can use trees to build stuff. It's a really good idea to replant those trees. Um, Yes, there's lots of water, but it's a super good idea to keep that water healthy because of the ripple effect. Same with air, you name it. it. I, I just don't see a biblical argument about why you would uh, plunder or abuse one part of the ecosystem because everything flourishes when everything is healthy. And if one part doesn't, there's going to be a ripple effect. That's just practical, but I also think that's a question of the whole stewardship issue. If there's dominion, if there's an idea that comes with that, though I think stewardship is the better word, uh, it would simply be the idea of, oh, you're in charge, take care of it. You're responsible. You're responsible. (laughs) You'll give an answer for it one day. And then I would come back to the intertwining of politics. I think in a modern sense, this might go back to the 60s and 70s, when you had kind of a a left-right division with a lot of social issues, the sexual revolution from the left and the opposition from the right. Uh, Civil rights. Yeah, yeah, civil rights, the Vietnam War. You kind of had this hodgepodge of really antithetical positions in society. And I would note, Beth, that I think when you talk about Christians aligning, I think you're thinking of evangelicals. Mm -hmm. And I would just point out that that is one camp of Christianity, but I get it. It's a a formative camp. A loud camp, Anthony. It's a loud camp, yeah. (laughs) But that's fair. (laughs) I think as those other things were, were rising and there was already a clash, what was coming up from the left was, Guys, 
the environment. And first it was global freezing. I'm old enough to remember that <laughs> or global cooling and then global warming. And I think because it came from the same crowd with which there was already hostility, there was an automatic, we can't accept that because that would make us align with a crowd that we don't align with in so many ways. I feel like there was a kind of a knee jerk. Yep. We'll have to take the opposite stance. I have seen that changing within Christian circles over the last number of years that kind of a recognition like, okay, we might've overreacted to that. Um, Let's talk about the stewardship issue. And there's quite a few Christian organizations that have kind of risen up to bring that front and center. Mm -hmm. I'll give you another example. When Earth Day became a thing, there was a lot of groups that really took that into kind of a new age spiritual sense, like Gaia, Mother Earth. um, That was almost a mystical and spiritual thing. And so, Christians would tend to look at that and go, not interested in worshiping the earth. Mm -hmm. So let's dismiss Earth Day. Mm. Well, okay. It's also possible to honor what we consider to be God's creation. Like we're supposed to think it's pretty amazing. What's the harm of taking Earth Day? We don't have to worship Mother Earth, but we can look at it and go, yeah, great day to remember. We've been given something to steward. It's important we take care of it. That just took some time to work itself out because those were I would say those were volatile times, but aren't all times volatile times? <laughs> and and I, in my experience, Beth, I think that kind of oppositional hostility is smoothing out. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, at least in my experience. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually would agree with that. And so now maybe the question is like, is it a little bit too late before we're going to see some really negative um, things playing out? But I want to just jump back to the Dominion thing because that really got my wheels turning. I was watching a video in preparation of this. And he was talking about uh, the messaging around climate change and how in a lot of ways it had paralleled the messaging around the pandemic when it first happened, which is that we had leaders coming out when, when COVID first came on the, on the map saying things aren't that bad just yet. um, But they will be bad in the future if we don't take certain precautions. And then we didn't, we didn't all come together and, and find the need to like combat that cause, you know, whether that was, you know, refusal to wear masks, for example, or, or whatever. Um, and then that was accompanied by maybe some leaderships that struggled with the messaging behind those things and the need for those things too. And then things do get worse and some are able to really realize that it's getting worse. So we're talking about people who aren't just inconvenienced by something like a pandemic or by something like climate change, but people who are like, Hey, I lost my livelihood or I'm potentially going to lose my life because of these things. And then there's others who are maybe inconvenienced, but maybe not even inconvenienced. And they're, they just don't believe that it's gotten worse because their day is consumed by other things that they find to be more pressing. So whether that's government overreach or, or whatever it might be, um, sanctions and legislative things that's infringing on uh, their ability to produce goods or whatever it might be. And so I just find that, that dominion topic to be really interesting because we're at a point now where at times people would say, yeah, we, our ancestors used to have to run from lions and grizzly bears. And now we have them in a circus performing for us. (laughs) Or when we were trying to get oil from this section to this section, and there was a river, we didn't know what to do. We have to carry it across on a boat. And now we're like, yeah, put a pipeline under the river. It's totally cool. And, and that's an amazing thing that you can somehow figure out and have the ingenuity to do things like that. But when you're so effective at your dominion over the environment, um, I think you tend to fall into this sense of complacency of like, we will figure it out if we have to. Mm-hmm. And then you, when you struggle to figure out or to be able to say like, well, when do we have to actually start to act? Um, we get cocky in that sense of dominion that we've experienced. And I myself was, was seeing that with something like the pandemic. When that messaging came out that this COVID thing was it was in Asia, I was like, there are so many people in the world that are smarter than me. This isn't going to possibly impact my life. <laughs> like someone is going to figure it out because we've figured out so many other things in the past. And sure enough, we didn't quite figure it out. <laughs> and so that's why I think this is like for me personally, providing a, a bit of a new perspective on something like climate change, where I don't like I have so many other times in the past. I don't want to just say someone will figure it out. It doesn't have to fall on me. <sighs> well, at the same time, understanding that my individual changes maybe aren't going to have as great of an, an impact as I would like to. 
but to understand, I guess, the gravity of the situation. And as Anthony talked about, that that might be changing even in circles where that otherwise wasn't happening in the past. I think if there is going to be hope found in this, it is in that, that we are able to understand the gravity of the situation, the changes and the the impacts that this could be having in the future and understanding, like, what do we have to do now? I wonder if part of the problem, Taylor, is that to make to do actions that would change the trajectory of human influence, climate change is to make decisions that we might not see, as you guys pointed out earlier. And if we could see a, a result next year, I bet you'd have people on board a lot more quickly because you would be able to see immediate response, like the instant gratification. When you're saying, Hey, 30 to 50 to a hundred years from now, things will be better. I think that feels like an, overwhelming and pointless exercise for people because it's so slow. Mm -hmm. And I think historically, before we had technology like we do now, where things were so fast, a slowly unfolding plan was how everything unfolded. Yeah. (laughs) But now we're so used to having things done so quickly that something with that kind of timeline feels almost unreal, I Mm -hmm. think. Yeah. I do think there are people who think like scientists will just figure out like a magic, like carbon vacuum or something, Mm -hmm. you know, or like some crazy solution where we don't have to do anything that's really disruptive to our day-to-day life and it'll just be fixed and it'll go away. And I, I agree with you. When I was driving over today, I was thinking about the comparison between the pandemic and climate change. And I, for me, the parallels I saw, in addition to what you described, which was really good, is that one, I see a common theme of denial. And I think that denial exists for a multitude of reasons. Some of them are political, some of them are personal. But I, I think, I, I mean, I'm, I'm willing to be sympathetic and acknowledge that this is hard. Like, if you really believe what's in this report and you accept it, it's hard to think about your planet dying or changing or what it's going to be like for us and our families and our children, you know, in the next however many decades, it's really painful. And we're already in the midst of a really painful time in the pandemic. So like to sort of wrestle with that emotionally, I think is something that not everyone is up to doing and denial is a lot easier, either Mm -hmm. deny or like someone else will fix it because it's too overwhelming. The more The thing that I'm more deeply concerned about that I see in both the pandemic and climate change is what we talked about before the three of us, which is like rights versus responsibilities. And, you know, people who are just like, this isn't going to affect me. Like I'm going to probably live and make it to 80 and it's maybe it's going to be a little weird in the next couple of decades, but like, I'm probably going to be okay. So I don't care about really much beyond myself. If if people are really honest, like it's not going to affect me. It's going to be a a, probably a terrible future, but someone else can deal with it. It's same thing with like the pandemic. Like if, if I don't want to wear a mask or I don't want to get vaccinated or I think I'm going to be okay, I don't really kind of care what happens to other people. Mm -hmm. Like my responsibility is to myself. That's fine. But like, if everyone thinks that way, then you have a pandemic that's never going to get under control and you have a climate change that's never going to be reversed. And not even everybody, just maybe a few too many people. A few too many. And that's the ecosystem argument. It's the ecosystem. Yeah. And I think what, this is a recurring theme on our podcast and I I appreciate it because it's something I'm seeing in my life, which is like the idea of rights versus responsibility and the individual versus the community. I think more and more, I love nature. What I see in nature is I also see in humans, and if you're a Christian, maybe you believe that's because God designed these systems this way, but I do believe in ecosystems. I do believe in communities. I don't believe that you act in a bubble. I think what you do affects other people and what other people do affects you. And it's designed that way. And at its best, we bring out the best in each other and we carry each other when we're weak or, you know, in a natural ecosystems balance that way too. It's beautiful. The thing I get frustrated about is I see so many Christians point to the diversity and beauty of nature as an, a, the proof of God's existence. Like how could something as sophisticated as the human eye evolve on its own or whatever, you know, I hear that from Christians a lot, but then I turn around and say, well, why don't you want to protect it? Like, why don't you want to take care of it? Like it's a system that we're all part of. If you believe that we're all part of God's creation, not just humans. If it's that amazing. Right. Yeah. 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 Protect it. Which kind of, I think maybe we're getting close to wrapping up, but I had a final question. And if you guys have more, you want to jump in with too, but I'm just curious, like what, how you guys respond emotionally to this kind of topic or thinking about it, because I, again, I really love nature. I spend a lot of time hiking and being out and quiet in nature. And I have to say that, like, it's not just this report. I've just felt this a long time. 
I have like a deep sense of melancholy in my life. Like I have this sort of grief that I I do think that the planet is dying or being harmed in a way that maybe can never be reversed. And I know there's a lot of people who think that's like tree hugging hippie philosophy or would roll their eyes. It sounds dramatic, but I just, it's not like I'm crying every day. I just, when I'm out in nature, I just have this sadness sometimes. Like I think it's slipping by. I think it's being changed in ways we can't protect. And it makes me sad because it's so beautiful and I feel responsible, but also out of control. Like I can't fix it. And it just, I don't know. It just grieves me. I just have this melancholy about it a lot of times. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah, I I think that I'm getting to that melancholy, which is uh, sad to say, but this is something that when I when I was mentioning earlier in the episode, how this is just a subject a lot like international politics that is just hard to grasp and understand. And when something is hard to grasp and understand um, fully, then it's a lot of times easier to just maybe deny it. And not that you're actively saying that it isn't true, but you're not uh, making changes in your own life, I guess, to combat it because it you haven't yet figured out how much it really means to you. And I can honestly answer that in the last couple of years, that's where I've been at. I, I have friends who are so passionate about this, who they have careers um, combating things like this or bringing awareness to this. I have a client that I work with groundwork center um, where it's an environmental advocacy group and I, I produce their podcast for them. And so I've been privy to their conversations that they're having with all these experts and legislators and different people. And that's giving me, not that I was denying again, not, I wasn't denying the evidence of these things, but it just hadn't yet impacted me in this nice little bubble that I live on in, in the Traverse city area where, you know, I'm in a pretty rural spot. I can find fresh air very easily. I can find a, a trail down the road that not many people know about. Um, I can go hunt deer. Which one? Which one? <laughs> no, 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 no. I've already had a couple of ruined and just darn people trying to enjoy nature. Um, and that is a change that I'm seeing maybe as early as this last year where it's like when the pandemic happened and the outdoors was one of the few like really safe places we had. And I'm not just talking about safety from um, COVID itself, but everybody, no matter where you fell on the seriousness of the disease, like what area of the spectrum you fell on and how serious you wanted to take it found like value in being outside because even if you didn't take COVID seriously, you were like, yeah, well, my cousin does and I want to spend time with my cousin. And so we're going to do it outside. And everybody was getting outside. Um, the statistics of people that have bought campers, motorhomes and tents and campsites around here are just bicycles. Like everything is just skyrocketed because people are seeing the value in something like this. And for me, since moving here, the first step was seeing that value. And now I think the second step and, I, and I'm in the middle of that is, is seeing the value and protecting it and not just saying and hoping that it's going to be here during my duration. Jacques Cousteau said, you protect what you love. He's one of my heroes. And yeah. I think that's true, which is like part of the reason when I hike or whatever, I, I try to post stuff on Instagram and just like let people know I'm not like you, Taylor. I don't hide on my trails. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a few though. You're right. There's always a few that you kind of want to just have for yourself. But I generally try to like just use social media as a way of being like, look how beautiful this is. And then people are like, oh, I didn't know that spot existed. And like get them out there because I know if they'll go out there, they'll fall in love with it too. And they'll care more about protecting it. And I think part of the division of like, aside from the overwhelming emotionality of it and the politics and everything. Also people are more isolated from nature than they've ever been at any point in history. We used to live in farms and have our hands on the dirt and be connected to the earth for like our survival. And now kids are sitting indoors. I mean, I've just wrote a paper recently about kids and, indoor versus outdoor time, but they're more on video games and screens than they've ever been before. And yet the overwhelming psychological, mental and physical health benefits of being outside and being nature are like indisputable in terms of stress and working out and all of these things. So if we're, if we don't even know what's out there, if we don't know about those wetlands, we don't know about those trails, we don't know about those beaches and we're just inside, we're not going to really care. Mm-hmm. We're not going to give a damn because like, I don't care if that wetlands painted over. I've never been there. It's never done anything for me. So that is part of the challenge too, is I think finding a way to engage people instead of just hitting them overhead with depression <laughs> and negativity is finding a way to inspire them and get them out in nature again so that they care and they want to protect it. Mm-hmm. I wonder if some people are experiencing that in California right now with the wildfire fires. Um, is it close to LA? Is that 
Okay, so and like a, Tahoe right now too. Yeah, yeah, a friend showed me a picture yesterday that his daughter had sent him. She lives in LA. She just took a picture out of her front door. It's just covered in smoke, like it's a permanent, full time, heavy smog. And I, I wonder if those kind of events are going to start getting people's attentions. Like, okay, this is bad. Um, how do we stop these kind of fires? And I, I think they're attributing a lot of these wildfire fires. Why do I keep saying flowers? I do that too. <laughs> okay. Wildflowers is more positive. <laughs> yeah. Um, these burning wildflowers <laughs> and, and recognizing they are increasing and they will continue to increase if some of these trends don't change. I, I want to come back to your thing about how you're feeling and how you're processing it. I think I struggle to process climate change the same way I do social security and cancer. And I'll explain. <laughs> Please. Uh, so social security from the time I was young, there was always this social security will run out in 30 years or 50 years. I'm like, whatever. Wait, that always, was during when you were a kid oh, too. Dude, it's been around <laughs> for a while. It's been like running out for yeah. a while. <laughs> I I'd always do thing. the math. I'd be like, okay, will I be good? And I just saw an article the other day that's like, yep, 30 years. There's no way it's sustainable. And it's this vague thing out there. And the goalpost keeps moving. And then I go, what can I do about it? Probably nothing. There's a little bit of a sense of despair and hoping that I'm lucky enough to reap the benefits of it before it all falls apart, but also thinking someone will figure it out. When push comes to shove, someone will figure it out. Same thing. My dad died of cancer. So I think about what will I do if I get cancer? And I'm like, just give me 20 more years. They will have figured out the mm -hmm. magic pill. I think that too. Yeah. Yep. yeah. <laughs> um, just yeah, put it off as long as you can. They'll, they'll get it. And in some ways, global warming feels like that to me or mm -hmm. climate change, however you want to phrase it, that it's something out there. I think they'll find a magic pill. Like, what did you call it? Carbon. Like a carbon machine. vacuum. Yeah, yeah. Carbon vacuum. <laughs> Tree. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's so the same way I struggle in those other areas. In some ways it's very hard to me to kind of tangibly wrap my mind around. It is coming. And then I also asked the question, just like with the other two, okay, so what can I do? Hopefully someone else smart enough will figure out how to solve this problem. Where I've ended up, I don't know if I feel quite the sense that both of you do. I end up just going, okay, what's in front of me that I can do? And it, it's not like I have radically transformed my life as I've been thinking about this, but it's little things like if I'm at a grocery store buying something and I can carry it and I don't need a plastic bag, I don't take a plastic bag. Right. Okay, so I have spared the world 50 plastic bags. Okay, that is like the smallest drop in a bucket you can possibly imagine. But there's a sense in which I think that's that's a practical thing for me to do. Um, it it does make some kind of difference. Mm -hmm. And it it's more those small things. I'm trying to look at what is proper recycling? What is stewarding electricity and water? Um, what are just the little things that I kind of take for granted that I actually don't need? They're just comfortable conveniences that in a small way are contributing to certain things. And then my other question would be, am, am I willing to pay more for products that are more environmentally friendly? If businesses have to clean up their act in terms of pollution, and I know prices will go up, am I going to be kicking and screaming for that? Or am I going to say, no, actually, I think this world, which as you said, Beth, as a Christian, I believe was this beautifully constructed work of art. Okay, if I think it's that amazing, I ought to be willing to invest in it. And so I, I don't know where the line, where you draw a line on how much you radically overhaul your life and how much you don't. So I'm not interested in telling other people where those lines ought to be drawn. I just have found that for myself, I have been increasingly asking the question, what does it look like to be just decently aware of the kind of impact I'm having that I don't have to have? And what does it look like to try to just change that? And at the end of the day, 30, 50 years from now, as you've pointed out, it would have to be a global movement to change things. Maybe we'll do that. I don't know. I'll do what's in front of me. I think I would, you know, because I like to drop little bombs at the end of the episode. I would say maybe because you're right, where the change is going to happen is going to be on a national and international level. And it does feel like not a lot we can do means a lot. Um, it's hard though. Cause I think about like 30 years from now, if I ever have kids or mm -hmm. my sister has kids, you know, hopefully I'll get to see grow up and just imagining like their anger and disbelief about right. being like, why didn't you guys do anything? I'm and me feeling that, yeah. like I, I wanted to, like There's there were some anger. of us who cared, you know, who did want to do it, but mm -hmm. we didn't 
do it collectively and like feeling that guilt and response. It's like, I feel for the, you know, girls in Afghanistan, but it's like, I didn't do that myself, but I'm part of a system that did. Mm-hmm. And I, what is my responsibility for the system and how much can I change? If you're going to be a single issue voter, maybe climate change is more important than abortion. Like, I'm just going to throw that out there. Like, just as a thinking point, like. This is your second bomb today. Yeah, wow. that's what I'm saying. Dare I say this one's even larger. <laughs> I'll just leave it. Just a question for people to wrestle with of like, I don't, like, politicians are the ones who can change this, you know? And I actually think there are a lot of issues that I could get behind with conservatives, but like this anti-environmental thing is like not one of them. And I think it's such an important issue. It's literally going to impact every person on earth and every unborn person who will come to earth. So just a thought, maybe that's an important issue to be a single issue voter. Maybe we can be multi-issue voters. Maybe we could do that, Anthony. (laughs) Maybe a third party president will get elected. I don't think it's ever going to happen, but maybe. (laughs) So that's just my ending thought of the day. Nice. All right. Well, you heard it here, folks, that that bomb that was dropped. I hope you plugged your ears during that. Um, And in honor of this episode, Anthony promises to hand plant 50 trees. So thank you for doing that, Anthony. Thanks, Anthony. Uh, That's, uh, yeah. 